Hey, uh, before we get started, I just want to talk about the Patreon real quick, if I don't talk about it enough. Just so you know, at $5 on Patreon, you get Dark Topic Plus. That's two exclusive Dark Topic episodes uh, every month. And you get 13th Floor Drops. That's one episode from the 13th Floor dropping to the $5 tier every month. At the 13th Floor, you get an episode of Brutal, where Kent and I serve up true crime cases, brutal true crime cases with a dose of gallows humor. That's myself and Kent Chungus. You also get Jack Luna's Dark Fiction, where I take a stab at short horror stories. And you get Tales from the Bottom Down, where myself and Deadbug bring scorching true crime tales from the depths of hell. At Apple, you get all of that. They're on Apple Plus, which it's actually called Dark Topic Plus. They're on Apple. On with the show. Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. Ah. The Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian. If you want to be a dick about it, or correct, I'm not sure. Either way, the thought of it, the Appalachian Trail, it's always made me uneasy. It's just too much exposed time in the woods for me. You know, out there walking with weirdos on the path of whimsy. Did you know there are shelters in on that thing? The AT? Where people sleep at night? Strangers tucking in together, trading stories about run-ins with black bears tips on what's best to use for toilet paper, ramblings about whatever ran one out of civilization and into the woods to figure it out in the first place. There are plenty of interesting facts that I could repeat from my research on the AT. That's what those on the inside track call the Appalachian Trail. The AT. And though I've never laid a boot on the fabled footpath, I know where it's at. Stretching 2,200 miles between Georgia and Maine, passing through 14 states along the ancient Appalachian mountain range of the eastern United States, through some of planet Earth's most majestic terrain, the AT calls more than 3 million people each year to stomp all over it, and still, the surrounding woods manage to swallow a few when no one's looking. Though I suppose that's to be expected, the odd disappearance the occasional suicide, even a murder for our dark purposes and peeking through the trees at the path. That's what some call it, the path. Because you just might find yourself while walking it. And for the sake of this story, I made that up. Harmless stuff. Unlike what old Lion Randall, LR as he was known covertly, got up to on this patch of path, his patch of path, You think I know my way around the AT? The Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian. Well, when it comes to old LR Lion Randall, you just wait. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Liar. In wait. Welcome to the small mountain village of Parisburg, Virginia, 
an old-fashioned town of 3,000 or so. Those who've hitchhiked this section of the AT will likely know Trent's Grocery, a popular point to restock supplies, a couple tins of beans, a patch for your tent, maybe a container of dewworms to fish nearby Dismal Creek, where the trout are biting this time of year. Spring. Deep breast season. And it doesn't get any better than when experienced in a natural paradise like Parisburg, VA. Mountains, valleys, rivers, streams, trails, the trail. The Appalachian runs through it, and its residents are always welcoming of the weary who wade in from the woods to wonder what the Wild West-esque brick buildings of the beloved downtown block have to bestow, and that's what happens out here on the AT. You get a little nutty after a while out in the trees. I went wacky with the W's and the B's there, with purpose. W.B. Warner Brother. And that's hood speak for those who don't know about it. That's what the glass of Trent's Grocery should be doing this 6th of May, 2008. The one with the local man's face plastered on it. They should be warning people. And not to be in the lookout, but to look out. But the glass doesn't do that. It just posts this homely face. This sad-looking face of this missing man. Local. And so the darkest part of Parisburg's recent past is doomed to repeat. 39-year-old Scott Johnston had been fishing Dismal Creek in the Brushy Mountains since early morning. So far, he'd managed to snag six trout, which would be more than enough if this were a solo camping trip. But his big buddy Sean Farmer is due this afternoon. At 6'4 and well over 300 pounds, Sean would scarf the six trout like sardines. So Scott, a smaller, bespectacled woodsman, adjusts his glasses, takes a sip of coffee, then casts out once again into the early morning fog. And as the sun rises, beginning to burn away the mist, a man and his dog emerge from the woods, 50 yards or so downstream. They notice Scott and begin making their way over. Slowly, though not tentatively, the two, the man and his dog, as they near, they appear to be starving. The dog's ribs, they're protruding. The man's slouched frame seems barely able to support a tattered camouflage jacket that the gaunt figure holds tight like a cloak. Y'all all right? The dog saunters up, and the man hisses at it. Bo, you leave that man's catch alone. Scott takes in the man as he approaches, looking more a threat than Bo to snatch a fish. Again. Hey, you two all right? They are not. By the looks, this middle-aged mangle of a man and his mangy mud are far from okay. His dark graying hair on his head and his face tell the same story as the dog's rib cage. They've been out here for a while, surviving. Well, that's a stretch. More like dying at this point. Ah, yes, sir. We're just fine. Just fine. Name's Ricky Williams. This here's Bo. Scott goes with it, and the two men converse for a bit, the dog sitting dutifully by the man's worn, jeaned leg. Neither acknowledge the clear trouble Ricky and Bo are in. Ricky, in fact, behaves as though this is just everyday living. Starving to death, stumbling around the woods, eating bugs with your dog. Does it get any better than this, compadre? Does it get any better than this? What's an empty stomach when your soul is full? 
Of course, things will be better if Ricky could catch any damn fish. He's got his rod here with him. Hasn't been able to catch fucking shit. What's your secret there, Scotty? Scott offers the older man two of his trout. And Ricky Williams turns to his dog. You see that, Bo? Just when it seems all is lost, the universe, it will provide. And I'm just making everything up here. These quotes, this dialogue, I'm making it up. The reality is probably far less. Old man Ricky and his dog probably came right out the bush behind Scott, both begging for a fillet. That's how they say it in the States. They don't say fillet like us uh, fancy boys over here in Canada. We say foyer, you say foyer. We say fillet, you say fillet. Regardless, that's basically the way it went. A desperate bushman and his starving dog caught a break that spring morning. What was it? It was 81. And until then, it had likely been a scrap or two from a trail shelter off the AT. Hikers on the AT are well known for being willing to help another out. And the AT is the Appalachian Trail, the Appalachian, you know. Just gotta remind you, the AT. You know, people who walk along this fucking massive thing, it's known as uh, the Mount Everest of hiking. Most of the people out there, they're like Ricky and Bo. This man and his dog. They're lost, these people out there, in a ways themselves. And they're trying to get back by disappearing for a while. It seems counterintuitive, but it sure works. If you can keep your sanity through the process and not stray too far from the beaten path. That being society, you know. Scott tells the man where he and his buddy are camping out for the week. Ricky says he'll maybe stop by in a couple of days to say hello. Then he and his dog, Bo, vanish back into the trees like entities. They have a couple of fish. It's going to be a good day. Scott continues fishing. And when he catches another, he wishes he'd given the two one more. Ah, well. He feels good knowing that he was here to provide the old man and his dog a long overdue break of their fast. Two days later, right around dinner time in this May of 81, Scott and his big pal Sean are at camp preparing a dinner of beans and trout. When the man and his dog, the Scott now felt he'd maybe hallucinated, show up wild-eyed and half-starved. Old man Ricky casually tells Bo to sit, and he takes a seat himself on a stump. The dog enjoys a trout all to himself, and Ricky picks at his meal of fish and beans while regaling Sean and Scott with tall tales of his time at NASA after graduating Virginia Tech as a younger man. And this guy's full of shit, obviously. But Big Sean and Great Scott are too polite to say so, so they suffer until darkness begins to fall like a curtain on their guest performance. And when the men begin hinting that they'd like to wrap it up, grabbing that fucking cane and trying to yank him out of their reality, Ricky Williams abruptly barks at his dog that it's time to go. He gets it. He knows when he's not welcome. It's when he continuously speaks for a good 45 minutes and the nods don't continue at a one nod to every 25 second interval. Perhaps he sensed that old, familiar feeling. Rejection. Old men like Ricky, old bums, old alcoholic fucking drug-using bums that just fucking siphon off of their moms and society and act like everybody else is the problem and they need to fucking accept them in order for their lives to be okay. Old men like Ricky, starving with a dog, 
panhandling for raisins and nuts on the Appalachian Trail don't get there by choice. They'd much rather be with their made-up girlfriend in their make-believe Myrtle Beach beach house. But they settle for the woods because nature is indifferent. And they settle for the company of a dog because dogs take what they can get. Don't get me wrong, I love a bum. Like, I, I don't mind hanging out with a homeless person for like 15 minutes. But, you know, an hour's a bit much. And let's talk about the dog for a second here. Old Bo, you know? The thing about dogs is... I think I said it before earlier here. I'm kind of pausing because my son and his friends are starting to play basketball outside. I got a basketball net and I told him to get his friends out here whenever he can. So I'm not going to tell him to stop because it's important for kids to be outside <laughs> as much as possible, especially in a fucking wasteland, frozen wasteland uh, like it is out here most of the time. So I'll just digress for a second here, I guess. Um, men who are lonesome not by choice, um, who have been rejected over and over again by people because they're a bit much, often end up with dogs um, because a dog can't reject them and they can beat the shit out of them as much as they want and the dog will stay. <laughs> and they can talk as much shit as they want to the dog and the dog will stay. It's perfect. Some of them even um, sexually molest the dog. How about that? But... Uh, what I'm really trying to get at here is that uh, old Bo is, is is a really sympathetic character here. He's just riding along with this bushman, this decrepit old bushman. Uh, very loyal to him, right by his side the entire time. And I gotta say about these dogs, I love these dogs. This is why it's it's important to get pound dogs. Certain ones. You know, some are too far gone, but some just want you to love them. And um, I've said before on this podcast things that make, make people think that I don't love dogs. I, I fucking love dogs. I do. Certain types of dogs. I don't have one. Um, I got different things going on in my life right now, but there will come a day where I get a few. And um, the type of dog I love is just one that's been so mistreated, and then you just you give it love, and it, it responds so well to it. I've seen terrible people with dogs, and I always speak up about it. I've seen men who are so bad with their dogs that they get upset when the dog wags its tail when company comes over because they're jealous. They're jealous that this new person coming in is making their dog happy and they typically see their dog as unhappy because of the abuse that they put on that dog. They have ruined so many relationships in their lives and now this is their last one, the one that has to stay with them, this dog, and they're jealous about the the dog getting scratched by somebody. I've seen that. <laughs> I'm sure you have too in ways. Maybe maybe you haven't been in as many fucking crack dens as I have. <sighs> anyway, so I'll, uh, I'll continue here. This is the type of relationship between Ricky and Bo. And I'll tell you straight away here, because I know it's difficult for a lot of people when it comes to, uh, to animals, that Bo's going to be okay. Nobody else is, though. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, so I went three weeks without drinking, and uh, this is my first time back. Not going so good. Nice. Fuck. Fuck. Fuck, man. I got a review saying I swear too much. Oh...
Oh, cool. Knock my mic all over the fucking place, too. All right. <clears throat> a bit of a sticky situation here now. His faithful companion, Bo, knows what the old man is capable of. I say old man. Ricky was 54 at this time, but the years spent in the woods had apparently aged him greatly. He looks like he's 75 with a methamphetamine issue. And I say the dog knows what he's capable of because he's about to show it. Ricky thanks the men for the meal and the company, then retreats from the campfire's glow, Bo trailing at his shuffling heels. There's a moment of relieved silence between the two men, then the gaunt, pale, stooped interloper returns, brandishing a gun that burns red in the fading light and the firelight. It's a 22. So unlike the intent here, the damage isn't immediately colossal. Ricky shoots the larger man, Sean, in the side of the head. Bang. Sean doesn't initially seem deterred by this. He continues looking at the fire and continuing to act casual. And then he reaches for his face as if the stranger had slapped him or maybe a massive mosquito had stuck its fucking pincer into him. And, but then blood, it starts running through his fingers. And it's like, oh shit, yeah, 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 you shot me there. And that's not a commentary on guns. I don't know shit about guns. Myself, I got a Daisy Duke. I shoot crows with it to let the, the cardinals sing. Sean, the big man, he watches as his best friend since childhood, Scott, is then targeted and shot in the neck. The big man, Sean, he gets up, and for his effort, he's shot in the chest. He stumbles back but does not fall. Then his smaller friend, Scott, he's running, but gets shot again, this time in the back of the head. And what a turn this night has taken. Some major party fouls are being committed out of nowhere here. Big Sean, he runs for his truck, while Scott, Scott is the one who initially invited this terror to the party. Scott continues running out into the woods. Scott has a truck too, but he's not thinking about that. He's just getting away from the gunfire. When Sean, his big friend, gets into his truck and starts the engine, he's bleeding bad from the face and chest. He can't run like Scotty. He's too big. He's too injured. And as he kicks the truck into gear, there's a click beside his head. The windows open. It's Ricky. He's fired again. His dog, Bo, is panting at his side. And he is fired right into the open driver's side window. But the shitty old gun either fails or is out of ammo. Big Sean doesn't know why the decrepit old bushman is doing this. Something they said or did must have been misinterpreted over their campfire feast. Or perhaps Ricky just felt like killing tonight. Who knows why crazy people do crazy shit. Sean doesn't stick around to ask. He peels out of the campsite, leaving the would-be killer, faithful dog, still at his side, in the dusty dusk. Sean can see Scott up ahead as he drives, and Sean circles back to catch a lift out here. The big man pulls up and Scotty hops in. Sean, he doesn't say a word. He's just focused on getting them out. Even if he wanted to say a word, he couldn't. The bullet to the head is starting to hurt. The bullet to his chest is bleeding all over his big belly. His jaw, it's swollen up very much so. So much so as he tries to talk, he's like, oh shit, not doing that. Let's just get out of here. 
And Scott, his little pal in the passenger seat, he's not doing so well either. I've heard it said, you know, that he's trying to stop the bleeding because it's going all over the interior. No, no, he's trying to stop the bleeding from his neck to not die. He's holding fingers up to his neck where the hold is at the front because it's, it's spouting blood. The initial shot to the side of his neck, it's a major issue. He's holding there to keep from bleeding out like a stuck pig. The one that hit him in the back of the head, as I said, and as has been reported, actually hit him more in the back of the neck, kind of neck, kind of grazed him. Uh, it might have been up just beside the tip of the spinal column. And he's not too worried about that. That just burns. But the one in the front of his neck there, it's a major problem. 22 or not. You know, I'm a 357 guy myself. No, I'm a Daisy Duke guy. I already exposed that. So this is a remote area of Giles County, Virginia, known locally as, quote, no business, which I assume means that nobody has any business being out there. The back mountain road that these friends have used for years since their childhood to camp and fish remotely is rocky, full of hills and twists and turns. It's treacherous. Sean, big Sean, he's losing consciousness. Scott, great Scott, is constantly looking behind for headlights. He left his truck back there with the keys of the ignition. The two worry that any moment, Ricky and his dog, Bo, will appear through a windshield cackling, hot in pursuit to finish the job. Sean crashes into a ditch at one point and they are momentarily stuck, but they manage to get back on track quickly. The crash seems to wake Sean up and he manages to get them to civilization. They pass uh, an empty house, uh, an abandoned house, and they pass one that nobody's home at, and then they come to one that has a light on. It's still 30 miles or so from the nearest hospital, but at least now they'll have help. When they make it up the driveway and Scott gets out to bang on the door, the two men are covered in their own blood. Sean, he's, he's gonna stay in the driver's seat because he's fucking dying and he can't talk anyways. And he's huge. I mean, you know, he doesn't wanna waste any energy. The woman who answers the door is hesitant to open up. Scott isn't the most welcome sight out here in the night. Initially, the woman thinks he's a home intruder and yells out for her son to come to the door. When the teenager sees that Scott is bleeding and in need of help, he opens the door. And soon the woman is offering towels to help the two stem the bleeding. And the police in town, along with a couple of ambulances, are being summoned. It takes like half an hour for them to get there. These guys are dying along the way. They're also worried that they're going to see uh, Scott's truck pull up with these two fucking maniacs. The dog's the worst of them, right? And when the ambulance arrives, Scott tells the story describing the man he knows as Ricky Williams and his and his dog, Bo. A cop recognizes the description and has someone go retrieve the missing poster from nearby Trent's grocery. It's actually the teenager of this woman. Her name is Melissa, I believe, and his name actually is Randy. Um, we'll get into that later. Because Ricky Williams' name is not actually Ricky Williams. It's uh, Randy. Sean and Scott are somewhat stabilized and are being lifted into ambulances when the poster is brought back by this teenager, Randy, and it's put in their faces. So he goes down to Trent's grocery and he, he snatches it off the window. We need this. And he hurries back and, and he's, he's holding it up to Sean, but big Sean, he can't speak, though his eyes say it all, before Scott manages to gurgle out, mm, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, that's, that's him, 100%. The two are then rushed to an open field where they are airlifted to hospital. Both, after surgeries, barely survive. The name on that missing poster that Randy, teenager Randy, brought back is Randall Lee Smith, a.k.a. Ricky Williams, a.k.a. Lying Randall, or LR for short. Police will track him down driving Scott's truck and a short chase ensues, ending in a crash. The arrest is made, and Randall Smith is taken to the same hospital as his recent victims. He is then transferred to the medical wing of the New River Valley Regional Jail. And hang in here with me. I'll get to a lot about Randall. I'm kind of scooting through this. There's a superintendent, or assistant superintendent there at the jail. And he can't believe his eyes. Randall Lee Smith, a.k.a. Ricky Williams. He's an old arrest of his. In a case that still haunted the area, as Randall Smith himself had apparently been doing. Randall Lee Smith, a.k.a. Ricky Williams, a.k.a. Lion Randall. We know him as LR. He grew up in the Parisburg, Virginia area and was notoriously known since his youth. Raised by a single mother who dressed her boy in girls' clothing for unknown reason. It would be an understatement to say that Randall stood out growing up. An understatement to say that he had trouble fitting in. No trouble fitting into a, to a dress, I mean... Anyways, known to lie just about every time he spoke, Randall would spin tales to make himself seem more important. Uh, He'd make himself seem heroic, successful. You know, at 17, saying he owned businesses, and then he had a wife and shit. And everyone's like, you live in a $10,000 house with your mom who dresses you up like a girl. What the fuck are you talking about? But he did this because uh, he had low self-esteem and he was trying to raise his own esteem. He'd earned the nickname of Lying Randall early. And it stuck with him as he continued to lie throughout his life. Randall, he worked odd jobs when he finished high school, taking up work at a shipping yard for a spell where they fingerprinted him. A detail that will come into play later. And the reason they fingerprint these guys, I couldn't quite find, but I just have to use my common sense here. And it's like, maybe there's a lot of uh, guys who work in shipping yards that commit crimes. (laughs) I don't know. Um, maybe they fall off the fucking ship and when the body's bloated and up against the shore later, they need a way to identify them. Uh, maybe they fingerprint them to make sure that they're not criminals. And then they, you know, put those into the registry. They also, um, do drug tests often on these guys in shipping yards because guys that go to work at shipping yards, uh, like to do drugs or, you know, they might. It's a tough job. Mainly Randall would spend his time at home with mom. There's a bunch of Norman Bates material here I'll leave laying beside the young man's nightdress. The trans movement was a little sluggish back in the 70s. And besides, it sounds like it wasn't really his choice anyway, so I won't touch any of that shit. Let me get another sip of my Bud Light here. It's a Miller. Relax, my right-wing friends. For my liberal friends, it is a Bud Light. And for those in the middle, it's a Heineken. This all, all this, this screwed him up. The teasing must have been relentless until Randall came of an age where he could choose his own outfits. Can you imagine being kind of a weird kid and your mom putting you in dresses and sending you out to play as a boy in the 70s? Fuck, he didn't have a chance. 
There's a lot we don't know about LR for a few reasons. Lion Randall. He was very private. Zero friends. Never had a romantic relationship. And when he did speak, it was all made up. His mother was a quiet woman working at the laundry of a hospital, I believe. They lived together in a small house through Randall's entire life, as a free man, that is. Lived right by the Appalachian Trail, where Randall spent much of his time fishing, exploring, and interacting with hikers from all around the country. There was no shortage of new people to impress with his lies. There was a parade of new people coming through, you know, walking through his backyard each day, and he took full advantage, handing out ear beatings like a Jehovah Witness or Min Hawken, the good word. And it's my opinion you can't trust any message contrived, any message that has been forced on somebody to spread. And when it comes to Randall, his message is being spread from a place of lies. You know, he, his, his end game is that he needs to feel better about himself. And the message is lies in order for him to feel better about himself. Mostly, Randall spent his time collecting arrowheads and cleaning up trash left behind by hikers. This pissed him off. He also had mental illness, definitely, though it was never diagnosed. It was a mix of drugs, alcohol, mental illness, his childhood that led him to become this really reclusive type. He wasn't a bad-looking kid. He just, you know, was very fucked up. He was what you would call back in the 70s, the 80s, just a loner. Randall began believing he was a steward of his section of the AT, the Appalachian Trail. The rejection he'd often experienced on the trail by hikers coming through being like, I don't want to fucking talk to a weird homeless guy from the area. I want to go to Trent's Grocery, grab uh, some dew worms, go fishing. Actually, maybe I'm just going to keep on walking. It's a long walk. You don't really have time to stop and talk to every weirdo on the path. But the rejection he'd often experienced on the trail no doubt led to some animosity towards outsiders, though it's said that most were kind to Randall, feeling sorry for the clear weirdo who by his late 20s was becoming the weirdo in the bush we just escaped along with Big Sean and Great Scott. It's kind of a Tarantino thing going on here. You know, bear with me. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. 
All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, <laughs> uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. On May 19th, 1981, two social workers, both 27 years old, the same age as Randall at this time, run into Randall at Trent's Grocery while restocking their through hike of the AT. That's a complete trek of the so-called Mount Everest of long-distance hiking. Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Ramsey were raising funds for the mentally ill, ironically. It's thought that they were probably kind to Randall this day, and that possibly L.R. took a shine to Laura, which later that night would end in a horror show. Randall, who could be quite social as long as he was in control, the star of the show, lying his ass off, would become aggressive and lash out if his facade was pierced by truth. It's possible that the social workers saw through Randall and attempted to give him some honest direction and constructive criticism. Or perhaps Randall got a little too pushy with Laura, who he probably was enamored by because she was being nice to him. Any girl that's nice to a fucking weirdo ends up having a weird situation in their lives for a few weeks and then has to worry about being murdered by the guy for the next, I don't know, five years. <laughs> Be careful, you know. I don't want to mansplain that, but seriously. It's thought that he was, you know, keen to Laura. Keen. I just used the word. This fucking English guy that I watched the YouTube documentary was using all the time. But it was felt that he, you know, was attracted to Laura and thought that she was attracted to him. And then Robert, who likely had a relationship with Laura, in my mind, stepped in and squashed Randall's advances. We don't know exactly what led to what happens here. But that night, while the two hikers slept at Wapiti's shelter near Randall's house, 
and only a couple of miles away from where a future double homicide attempt featuring our old uh, boy Great Scott and our big man Sean were almost killed near Dismal Creek. Randall Lee Smith snuck up on the pair and shot Robert twice in the head with a twenty-two as he slept, killing the man. Laura woke up, fought like hell. It's not clear if Randall subdued then raped Laura, as many people think, myself included, as her body would later be found too affected by the elements to tell for sure. These are animals, bugs, sun, you know, moisture, whatever the fuck. I mean, it's sped up decomposition, I'm assuming. But she did fight. There were defensive wounds on her arms that they later, uh, that they found on her. Randall beat her with an iron rod about the head, stabbed at her with a knife, and eventually took to puncturing her 13 times with a long nail before or maybe after she finally died. Picurism is what I'm feeling here. You know, when people like to, after they kill somebody, they just start to stab them multiple times and just watch the blade slip in or a nail slip in. Interesting that it was 13 times. There's a lot of rumor that Randall was involved in the dark arts, and we'll get to that. He buried the bodies in their sleeping bags under dirt and piles of leaves. It would take some time to find them, but after more than a few tips came in, following Randall, telling anyone who would listen that he knew what happened to the missing hikers. He was telling hikers that came through, hey, did you hear about those two missing hikers? I know what happened to them. And then they keep on walking. Oh, thanks for the fucking raisins. Hey, do you want to hear? Do you want to hear about how I killed fucking two people just like you guys? No, no, we're good. So they bring cadaver dogs out and they uncover what would be the first double homicide ever reported on the Appalachian Trail. They don't bring them out because Randall's talking shit. I'm going to get to that right now. Their belongings are found seemingly in random spots around the shelter. Um, They're later realized to have been placed in carefully selected areas that could be found by compass point from the bodies or from Wapiti's shelter. That's how Randall kind of laid them out so he could find them later and, I don't know, jerk off on them or whatever he does. The killer, LR, he had stolen logbooks from the area in an attempt to hide that the hikers had been through Parisburg. A camera of Laura Ramsey's was found with a film ripped out of it and a paperback with a bloody fingerprint inside of it matched neither victim here. It, of course, was eventually found to match local weirdo Randall Lee Smith. And forgive me, I'm no Quentin Tarantino, though I do enjoy feet. Men size 15 and up, preferably hairy and heavily callous. That's darktopicpod at gmail.com. <laughs> On Twitter, dark underscore topic and uh instagram dark topics it turns out lion randall lr you know he had his kinks too just like me a search warrant of his mother's house once they find out that his fingerprints match this book right because um he was a welder at uh some yard i'm acting like i haven't done my research it's just me being overly chill i'm covered in beer and uh been a bit of a rough recording session so far. Let me restart that. A search warrant of his mother's house yields laminated pornography. It's 1981, so no big deal. Also, there's bloody jeans and some possessions of the deceased victims, which isn't good for Randall. But the kinky part, the nasty business, is the medical instruments. MacGyvered into nasty tools meant for sexual use. And uh, something about medical hardware being used for sex or rape, 
makes my genitals quiver, and not in a good way. Like a good way would be being stepped on with a size 15 work boot. You know, stepped on my genitals, right? That's more my speed. But enough about me. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to be less open these days, so I, I, I digress. <laughs> the assistant superintendent of the jail, Randall, will end up in three decades later, after the initial story I told you, is assigned to this case back then in 81. His name is Detective Lawson. I mean, his first name's not Detect. At the time, Lawson and his fellow investigators search the trails tirelessly for any sign of their suspect. But they can't find Randall. And eventually they learn from his mother, his quiet mother, you know, sitting around watching, what would she be watching back in 81? The Price is Right. And she tells investigators when they come to check in on her again and be like, hey, where's, where's your son? Do you have anything you can tell us? Last time you didn't tell us shit. And she says, well, he has a truck and the truck's not here. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, we've been walking around the trails around here thinking he's just, you know, uh, your boy who's, you know, got a disability of some sort and can't do anything for himself. And maybe he's just like walking around the trails with his dog. Uh, but it turns out he left a couple of weeks ago. So thanks for the new information. And now on to the showdown, the showcase showdown. Can we borrow one of those medical devices from the basement to feature in our, our showdown here? Th thank you so much, Ms. Smith. They also discovered this point in a note written by Randall stating that he'd been kidnapped by two people, which is an unusual find. Kidnapping victims don't usually write their own ransom notes, but uh, he did which is in his handwriting, and who gives a fuck? It's just dumb shit happening here. By the summer, so this happens in May, and now it's June, most are convinced that Randall has taken off somewhere to commit suicide. Lead Detective Lawson decides he needs a vacation. He's tired of walking around the woods. He's tired of dealing with all these morons here in this, in this area, especially the mother, and uh, he, he needs to go to Myrtle Beach down there in South Carolina. Six-hour drive. Grab the wife, grab the kids, we out. Not long after he arrives at Myrtle Beach, the detective receives a call that Randall Lee Smith has been found. His truck has been recovered as well, with a note inside that reads, quote, This boy and girl have been so nice to me, it's going to be a real shame when the time comes to get rid of them. I will be far away before a truck, and those people are found. End quote. Whatever the fuck this means. Randall, you know, he's he's written this down and stuffed it in his ashtray. Uh, who knows what he's talking about? Is he talking about new people? He's talking about young people? This boy and a girl? They're the same age as you. If he's talking about the victims, the guy who died, by the way, looks like he's 45. He's one of those guys from, from that area who had a mustache and you know, full head of hair. and uh, He's 27, but he looks much older than me. He can't be talking about him. Is he talking about somebody else? It's 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 odd. A lot of people think that Randall had something to do with a with a ton of murders. I I'm not one of them. I just think he's nuts and uh, full of shit. I mean, his nickname is Lying Randall. Need to remember that. I think he even lies to himself just to make him big himself up to himself. So Detective Lossett, he's on the phone. He's there in Myrtle Beach. He's got his shorts on. His family's getting ready to go dig in the sand. And he tells the officer on the phone that he'll come right back home. It's a six-hour drive. Hold tight. I can't believe I just got here and we've caught him. You know, 
fucking uh, Murphy's lie. He'll be right. What? Huh? Wait a minute. What are you? Well, I'll be. What are you trying to tell me here? Lawson is told that Randall has turned up in Myrtle Beach. He's being held at a station only a few miles away from the detective's vacation spot. The kids and wife won't even need to be disturbed. And how about that? The lead detective that takes a break from searching for his perp ends up right where he needs to be. And that's strange stuff. There's a lot of weird coincidences. Coincidences. When it comes to this Detective Lawson and uh, old L.R. Lion Randall. Detective Lawson is soon sitting at a table in the Myrtle Beach PD. Across from Lying Randall. Who's doing what he does. Lying. They don't necessarily need it, but Lawson devises a quick plan to get the killer to admit who he is. Randall, he's like, I got amnesia. I don't know how I got here. I don't know who I am. We got your fingerprints, stupid. You know, Randall's kind of dumb. He's also covered in seeping wounds as a result of being eaten by bugs after he deserted his truck and just walked around the woods around Myrtle Beach in South Carolina for a while before he got picked up for some, I don't know, charge. I don't know what it was. Um, But he's covered in these bites that are disgusting. You know, he's complaining of the pain. It's all over his hands, his arms, everywhere. It's fucking everywhere. And um, he can't stop himself from scratching the shit out of all of it. He's damn near in tears over these wounds on himself. And Detective Lawson tells the pathetic soul that he'll get a medical treatment for those wounds. But he'll have to sign right here on this document his permission. And he slides across a piece of paper that is like a consent form to, to get a medical treatment that he just drew up. And the suspected killer frantically picks up the pen and quickly scrawls his signature. The name he puts down is Randall Lee Smith. And they got him. They already had him. But I mean, you know, confirmed. Oh, you don't know who you are and you just signed your name is exactly who you are? Perfect. All right, Randall, let's go. Trip's over, hon. Kids, get in the car. Randall, you want to ride? <laughs> we'll strap you to the fucking roof. Lying Randall is transported back to stand trial in Virginia, charged with two counts of first-degree murder. One would think that considering everything, this would be a slam dunk. But the prosecution felt that the case was shaky without a clear motive or a confession. Again, 1981. Randall, he told people he knew what had happened, and his print was found on a victim's paperback. He also, f- uh, Laura, sorry, Ramsey, God rest her soul. He also fled the area after the killings. And there's more, I'm sure. But they didn't want to take any chances, apparently. So a plea agreement was settled. And Randall Lee Smith, 27 at the time, was sentenced to 15 years apiece for the murders of Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Ramsey. Two social workers, 27 years old apiece, out working for a good cause to help people like L.R. They just finished a meal before they were killed. Uh, Maybe they were kissing and hugging. I don't know. They'd had a few sips of rum. They found Bacardi rum in their their stomachs. And then they nodded off. You know, Robert nodded off forever, got shot in the fucking head a couple of times by a 22 while he was sleeping. God rest his soul. Laura, she got woken up. This is why we think that he raped her. Why wouldn't he just shoot her too? He woke her up and started stabbing her when she fought him. He raped her. At least her corpse is my belief. 15 years apiece. 
But here's the kicker and something that everybody's missing in the research that I do. They're like, oh, my God, he got 30 years. How could he, how could he get out in 15? They would be to serve concurrently. 15 years, 15 years. Concurrently, it's just 15 years. He served 15 years. It's a, it's a really uh, – it's rough stuff. I mean, you know, you stalk and, and murder two people who were trying to help you out possibly rape the one before you kill her and you get 15 years and you run and you hide and you ruin a guy's vacation 15 years anyways this is why i did the 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 first part of the story which is the last part of the story first you know randall was released in 1996 after this 81 case and he went back to live with his mother by the appalachian trail his probation eventually ended mom eventually died And Randall, at the age of 54 in 2008, where we started, decided to abandon his home when the money for mother's meager inheritance dried up and the light stopped working in the house and the water fucking dried up too. He took his fishing rod and his dog bow that he got when he got out of prison, took him out into the woods, where at some point the spirits began speaking to him, we think, saying he needed to make something sacrifice to keep his life going so hot. (laughs) You know, that's what some think anyways. Imagine a guy like Randall, the need to make sacrifices happen to to keep things cool with the way that his fucking life's gone. How's it going to turn around, Randall? Well, you think you're going to kill a few people and then what? Hot chicks, all the shit that you make up, you're going to have a beach house in Myrtle Beach? And you're going to have a super hot hot girl? Or guy? I don't know. Whatever you're into, right? Anyways, this is what some people think. You know, that he was into the occult and this is why he was trying to kill people. While Randall was on the run after shooting Sean and Scott in 2008, some of his belongings were found in the woods afterwards. Within them was a bunch of shit. There was like a portable TV. Um, Well, there was an audio tape that had some weird chanting on it. Men with women in the background. No, no, no. It It wasn't like a hey, how are you situation. It was like satanic type chanting shit. Also discovered were many pairs of women's underwear, most of them size large, that some hypothesized could be trophies, and that Randall was a serial killer. Personally, I think he, Randall, LR, lying Randall, just had a taste for wearing women's panties after that messed up childhood. Do you remember that, guys? I mean, messed up for the 70s wearing, you know, (laughs) girl stuff. That's not a shot, nothing. I'm just saying, like, it's pretty fucked up back then. So the thought that a guy who gets tricked into his signature, as easy as Detective Lawson got him to make back at Myrtle Beach, the thought that he could get away with eight or more unknown murders and that these pairs of underwear that they find are connected to some unsolved murders in the area is a little far-fetched. You know, I think he's probably wearing the underwear, considering that his mother used to make him wear women's clothes one more thing there's a bunch of writing in Randall's belongings a bunch of shit that made people think that maybe all this had to do with the occult like Wicca I keep on seeing Wicca I don't know anything about this shit Wicca Wicca whack that they they think that maybe I shouldn't have said that they think that maybe Randall Lee Smith was part of some bloodthirsty sect here's a taste of some of the writings found in his belongings after he shot Sean and Scott. Quote, 
Hail to the guardians of the watchtowers of the east powers of air and invention. Hear me. Hail to the guardians of the watchtower of the south powers of fire and feelings. Hear, oh, I'm getting nervous reading this shit. Hear me. Hail to the guardians of the watchtowers of the west powers of water and intuition. Sick. Oh, yeah, that's a fucking mistake on his part. Intuition. Hear me. Hail to the guardians of the watchtower of the north by the powers of Mother and Earth. Hear me. And me in this magical working on this maze eve guardian of the bitter sea. Show me your glory. Show me your power. I pray thee. I pray thee. I invoke thee. Oh my god, I hate saying this shit. This is fucking unquote. Okay, requote. Oh, sacred one, hear my calls. Ancient wise one, teach me thy ways. Lend me thy power. Show me thy glory. I invoke thee i invoke thee O ancient one end quote so this shit's written in his belongings right but the writings appear to be modified quotes from the 1996 hit film the craft randall was a big fan apparently <laughs> of the craft you know he just kind of modified the, the sh- chance from the craft although the craft may have taken it for something but randall wasn't involved with the sect he was at home watching videos with an ankle bracelet on in 1996 and got obsessed with it because he's mentally ill. Oh, and the chanting on his cassette tape is likely recorded from a movie too. They could tell from eerie instruments in the background that you know those old horror movies, they always had like a... It's like a theremin or a waterfall. Sorry to ruin the fun, but this is Lying Randall that we're talking about, not some prolific serial killer. A couple days after his final arrest in 2008, May the 10th, which might be today when I release this, Randall is found dead in his cell, likely as a result of crashing Scott Johnston's truck. Back in the beginning, he flipped it, landed on the top, and when the cop came up to get him, it was like a veteran. He was, he was around Randall's same age. He said he looked down through the flashlight in, the, in Randall's face, who's claiming to be uh, Ricky Williams, who was like a running back for the Miami Dolphins, wasn't he? Um, puts the flashlight in lying Randall's face and says, those were the darkest eyes I've ever seen in my career. So he dies in his cell after this crash. And I read that it may have been a blood clot. You'll, you'll hear many other places it's natural causes. Are you fucking kidding me? This guy lives in the woods through winters and, and starving and everything else. And as soon as he's arrested, he dies four days later. It has to do with the crash, right? Or he embarrassed somebody, but I don't want to get into that. Or it has to do with it being May. And I'll get to that in a second. I'm just putting some mystical shit together here, you know, at the end. And this is in my writing. This isn't straight off the top. It's going to sound a little bit like I'm making this way. But as I was writing this, as I finished up, I realized that the murders of Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Ramsey happened in May of 1981. May. Spring. The attempted murders of Sean Farmer and Scott Johnston were on May the 6th of 2008. And his death, Lying Randalls, happened in May as well, just a few days later. That same May. That's May 10th. Uh, it's May 6th, 6th, as I'm recording this now. May 10th is probably when you're going to be hearing this, so that's a little bit weird, too. You know, maybe something weird is going on here. Maybe, you know, something to do with spring. I don't know, Wicca or what the hell this is. I don't want to deal with this right now. We'll just finish up. I'm sure you don't want to deal with all this woo-woo-hoo-hoo shit either, but 
a little bit wild. There is a private funeral held for Randall Lee Smith. His dog, Bo, attends, I told you. I'd wrap this up nice with the dog. And it's said that Bo scratches at the dirt of Randall's grave throughout the private ceremony. They have the ceremony, the burial. They don't tell the public. They tell him after he's buried, beside his mother, by the way. Buried in his mother's house dress. And he might be relieved to know that his dog, Bo, died in May the following year. No, <laughs> no, he was taken into a loving home where his rib bones soon disappeared under a layer of healthy fat. And that'll do it for that one. I got some shout-outs here from the $25 tier of Patreon. Dallas Egan, but eager to get to that. Jason Hart, listen to your heart. Jason Hart, I love you. Michelle Hatfield. I found a hat in the field once, Michelle. Thank you so much for all your support. Um, if you could follow me on Twitter, I am dark underscore topic. I never say that. The reason why is because I have almost 5,000 people on there. And anytime I make a tweet in the last three years, nothing happens. Before that, I'd make a tweet and maybe 300 people would like it or something like that. Now nothing happens. I just made this tweet. This might be funny. Let's see. No? Oh, True Crime Guys has liked it. <laughs> Thanks, True Crime Guys. Shout out. Um, I said on my Twitter, vapid is my favorite word. It's a real shit tweet. I meant, to be, I meant it to be shit. But vapid, you know, means offering nothing. Dull. So me saying that vapid is my favorite word is dull in itself. So it's kind of funny, right? Patreon, I explained in the beginning, and uh, I've been fasting lately for uh, anybody who's interested. I quit drinking three weeks ago. You know, I'm one of those guys who quits and then comes back all the time. But uh, I didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do nothing for three weeks. Just been writing and reading and hanging with family and all that. And uh, I've been fasting from 12, sorry, from 6 p.m. until noon the next day. So I only eat between noon and 6. And I eat a big fucking salad and a can of sardines at noon or some kind of protein. Lately, it's been sardines. And then for dinner, I have what everybody else is having. And I'll cheat sometimes in the evening and I'll have some sunflower seeds or some popcorn with Charlie while we're watching Family Guy. I watch Family Guy with my five-year-old. Yeah, he thinks it's great. Lucky there's a family guy. Now he says, what does he say? Um, F and cry. So he's like, is it? I think it's F and cry. But it's laugh and cry. On the f anyway, sorry. So this has been working for me because it's like you, you quit what's, what's harming you and you focus on a new challenge. The challenge isn't the alcohol and the cigarettes for me. The challenge is the fasting. So that got me through three weeks, maybe two weeks. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed that episode, and uh, I'll see you real soon. Time to go wash my hands because I spilt that fucking beer all over myself and probably made that episode a mess, but we onward and upward. We, we, uh, we move on. Vapid. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked. Oh, one thing I want to tell you. A guy came to my door, just a quick story. Guy comes to our door. And he is selling something. So my girl answers. And he's trying to sell shit for kids. So it's like he knows that we have kids. Maybe he saw some kid shit in the backyard where there's a treehouse and all that. 
And he's from, where the fuck is he from? Like Russia or something. And I'm researching for this episode, actually, in the back room. And I hear her talking to him. She's one of the types who can't say no. That's why she's with me. And she's like just being nice. And I've told her before, I'm like, with salespeople, you can't be nice because you're giving them hope. You think you're doing them a favor, but you're actually leading them on. It's actually kind of mean what you're doing. You're upping their expectations is going to make the sale. And then finally, you're just going to say no 15 times and close the door. And you wasted their time, got their hopes up. It's, it's no good. Just tell them no right off the bat. So she's already being nice before he even does his pitch. And he's this Russian dude. So he's pretty aggressive, right? Ed, I hear her say, no, we're not interested. And he goes, well, what about this? I don't do a Russian accent very good, obviously. And she says no again. And then they continue talking. And I hear her say no again. And it's cold. And the door is open. I could feel it coming in through the house. I don't give a fuck about the heat now. It's whatever. But like, and Charlie walks up. And Charlie's involved a little bit. And he's talking over the kid, my kid. And he's kind of starting to be, he's put putting on the push. He thinks she's home alone. So I walk up, come over his shoulder and go, hey, she said no three times. Take a fucking hint, stupid. <laughs> and he goes, oh, oh, maybe I should leave. I go, yeah, maybe you should fucking left like 15 minutes. And then my girl's pushing me away from the door, right? Oh, oh, maybe I should, yeah. And I'm, and I'm going, yeah, you should have fucking left 15 minutes ago, you stupid fuck. Sorry for all the swears if you're listening in front of your kids to this for some reason, but I'm the bad guy. He's the bad guy, but suddenly I'm the bad guy. So we had a talk afterwards and she understood where I was coming from. She said I was a little aggressive. She says, you're like a pit bull. I'm like, well, listen, like, does he want inside? It's cold out. Does he want in the door? Does that guy think that he can step in the door with a woman who's by herself with her kids in a house in this day and age? If you had an offer that, he would have come inside. You fucking kidding me? It's 2023. I'm a true crime podcast host. I know how this ends. Right? So at the stay paranoid point, what I'm trying to say is just say no. If you don't want something going on, just say no. Just flat no. No niceties, no nothing else, because niceties are weakness in this world. They always have been. If your true answer is no, let it be a no. You don't have to sugarcoat it because of the per person pushing it. If the person pushing for a yes can't take a no, they're a bad person. I, I don't know where that's headed. Why be nice to somebody who's not being nice to you? Having a smile on your face and a fucking sales pitch doesn't make you a nice person. It makes you a fucking schemey little fuck. And no and close the door. Hashtag mansplaining. Eyes cocked, doors locked. Stay paranoid. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.